Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2016, volume 54, number 11. My name's David Fasakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. Our editorial this month discusses changes to the National Rubella Susceptibility Screening Programme in pregnancy. Uh, why did we choose to cover this? Well, this is interesting. In effect, we've stopped now regularly checking pregnant women to see what their rubella status is. Why did we do it before? We did it before because way back in the 1970s, uh, congenital rubella was a major issue. About one in 200 babies were born with um, the classic triad of a congenital heart defect, deafness and blindness. So as a result of that, the rubella immunization program was introduced in the 1970, initially just for girls between the age of 12 and 13. And that reduced the numbers of cases of congenital rubella syndrome by about fourfold. In 1988, everyone, including boys, got the rubella jab, and uh, there were just 32 cases of congenital rubella between 1990 and 1994. And since 2005, there have just been 12 cases in the UK of congenital rubella. And under the WHO definitions, that actually now considers the condition to have been eliminated. So as a consequence of that, the protocol was changed, so we no longer now screen pregnant women for rubella. Um, so we have no way of knowing whether a woman is susceptible to rubella later on. So what's the issue? So, okay, so, so in the UK, we've been uh, uh, able to eliminate congenital rubella, but of course, that's not the case worldwide. And globally, rubella vaccinations only cover about 50% of the population. So whilst we may well have been able to cover uh, UK born and bred girls and make sure that they are rubella immune. There are going to be women who perhaps were born elsewhere or who have been brought up in other parts of the world who are not going to be rubella immune. And the message really is that we as GPs in women who are potentially fertile, we should be assessing whether they've had a rubella vaccination and if they haven't, organising that for them. Oh, a particular interest was that the cases that we have seen over the last few years None of the mothers were born in... Yes, absolutely right. So that was the interesting thing. When we looked at the, the evidence, all the cases that have been in, in the UK, particularly London-centric, they were all in women who had been born outside the UK. So if a different... It's going to be different for different areas, but you can't any longer rely on the programme. Therefore, primary care and family planning clinics need to be proactive in asking the question, have you been immunised? That's right. And I think we used to. We, we always used to um, consider rubella screening uh, in uh, family planning clinics. But I think it's even more pertinent now um, if you have someone who was born overseas or has spent a lot of their childhood there. Good. Thank you very much. Our first main article this month discusses uh, some of the information sources that are available to help healthcare professionals prescribe safely and effectively. Uh, what do we cover? So we've, what we've done here is we've tried to cover all the medical information sources available for GPs, freely available for GPs. So we've looked at some of the online systems such as the Electronic Medicines Compendium or EMC. We've looked at the BNF, uh, MIMS, the NICE Clinical Knowledge Summaries and a lot of the other uh, more perhaps um, niche uh, areas for medicines information. And sort of, you know, if you had to distill it down to one or two key messages for new prescribers or people who want to brush up on their kind of prescribing knowledge, what, what did you take away from this? So I think what I took away with it is 
firstly, the GMC still recommends that the BNF um, should be our first point of call. For those who are still reaching for their old light blue covered 1980s BNF, time has come for, to throw that in the bin and, and really go online and either use the app or the online basis. This is because it's been radically changed. It's uh, renewed every month. Um, and it's really important that you, obviously, with the rapid changing in medicines, you keep up to date. So that was the first point that I think is important. The BNF has radically changed, and you need to be using an electronic version of it, really. But there's something about understanding, as well, the, the structure and content and layout of this new. So yes, you're familiar with it. I, I think absolutely right, because I think for anyone who's used to the book, the new BNF is radically different. And I have to say, I still personally struggle with the format. I, I liked the fact that the BNF was actually... a rather like a little mini medical handbook and you could actually learn your medicine from the nice little vignettes they had for all the various diseases. They are still there, but they're more difficult to find. Um, uh, so I think it is important that people pick up the electronic versions of the BNF and get, get used to using them. The other thing I think for me is I think the electronic medicines compendium is often a really useful source if you find you can't find the information in the BNF. Things like patient information leaflets, you know, patients often ask us, how should I take a medicine? And you won't find that in the BNF, and, and that's a good source. And the, just again, as a, a point of people who haven't familiarised themselves with the EMC, it holds what people might regard as the rather dry, legalistic summary product characteristics, which you might think is just a kind of legalistic document. But actually, they're more than that. Well, that's right. I mean, it is. It's part of the market authorization for the drug. So they, they can also be found on the MHRA and the European Medicines Agency website too. But, but we think that the EMC uh, website is better. But there is a lot of information there. You can also look at the history of how a, a summary product characteristics might have changed over time. And very often there's those little issues that someone might ask you about, which you might not find uh, in the BNF, but you may well find tucked away in the SPC. That's a good source for going to. Yes. I mean, we talked also about some of the other more niche things. So, I mean, one of the classic problems we have as GPs is around prescribing in pregnancy. And we have details of the UK teratology information website and lots of other issues around breastfeeding, renal uh, disease and uh, liver uh, liver disease as well. So I think it's a really useful just sort of article you can go and look at and if you're looking to sort of um, find some other sources of information there's a lot of stuff there that you can pull off and perhaps um, add as favourites to your web browser. Okay thank you very much and our final article this month looks at the management of what we call difficult to treat asthma so perhaps we should start by identifying what group of people are we talking about? Yeah, so these are patients who are still having exacerbations or still having symptoms despite being, you know, the level four or above treatment uh, level for their asthma. So they are the, as we, you know, they are the difficult patients and we look at really how we approach them and then how we might treat them. And what sort of things did we find? Well, I think the thing that I found most helpful was the idea that actually a lot of these patients may have difficult to treat asthma but it's because we're not yet treating them right so actually if we just make sure that we've got the diagnosis right you know has this patient really got asthma check their adherence to medication and I think there's a nice discussion about the difference between intentional adherence or intentional 
inadherence and unintentional. And of course, in asthma, a lot of patients have unintentional non-adherence to their treatment. Uh, looking at comorbidities such as reflux and rhinitis. And what was interesting is if you take away all that, probably only 5% of these patients will still have severe refractory asthma. And so once you get to that group and you need to manage them, we then talk about the options available. Classically, it'd be oral steroids and oral steroids associated with, with uh, long-term problems. So what else do we cover? So what we've, what we've done is looked at some of... We've looked at, first of all, you know, uh, is there a place for immunosuppressants to use as steroid-sparing treatments, so methotrexate gold? And um, we look at the evidence behind whether that, that's effective or not. We also look at two particular subtypes, if you like, of asthma. Patients who have allergic IgE-mediated asthma, and about 50% of severely refractive asthmatics will have allergic IgE-mediated asthma. And we talk about omalizumab as a monoclonal antibody for this treatment. Um, this is now NICE and Scottish Medicines Consortium approved. And there are about 25 studies that we review that show that exacerbations, hospital admissions, and oral steroid use are reduced with it. And the other drug? Sorry, yes, and the other drug is mepolizumab, which is uh, an anti-eosinophil therapy. So another group of asthmatic patients develop airway eosinophilia due to an overgrowth of T-cell, one particular T-cell, and mepolizumab is an antibody against these particular T-cells. Two studies, um, 32 weeks or so long, reduced exacerbations, but... The evidence was slight, I have to say. So we're talking about, in the one study, one less exacerbation over 32 weeks. So there is some evidence, I mean, and maybe that's what we try and draw out as well, is the fact that, that some of the older treatments that people have relied on probably have less evidence than these newly licensed products, or at least there is a body of evidence accumulating for these, these newer products. And if we would say, have we, got, have we covered the new... BTS sign guidance in this one? Yes, remarkably, we have managed to cover the new BTS guidance. So that's just came out a month or so back. And so we do include their new step approach to that. And we look at some of the things that they uh, cover, such as bronchial thermoplasty uh, in that. And also whether there's a role for immunotherapy, whether it be subcutaneous or sublingual. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read this and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And for any comments, criticisms or suggestions for future topics, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much.